well, what, what actually are we really good at? You know, what's our position in the marketplace, you know? And if we were to close tomorrow, would anyone miss us, you know? Um, you, you've got to really have an understanding of what we're good at mm. and, and, and can we be better to take a better position in the marketplace and, you know, where is the value that we're creating for the end user? And, and that's really important that we do that. And once you are comfortable that, yes, we have got the capability to actually achieve the things that we think we can achieve... Um, then you've got to build a culture that's going to embrace that vision and you know allow people to be part of it. They've got to know that what part they play, but continually work on you know making sure that we all understand who we are as a business, mm-hmm. our position in the marketplace, how we, you know, what we actually do for customers, and the value that we are actually going to provide. Real People is produced by Square Holes, an agency conducting and publishing customized explorative research on key consumer markets, customers, and population segments. Square Holes also provides associated consulting and support to ignite positive business and social behavior change. Visit squareholes.com for more. Radio, hello there. My name is Jason Dunstone, and welcome to Real People where we interview average and not-so-average people, academics, researchers and leading thinkers to help us better understand what real people believe and how they behave. Today we are joined by Damien Scanlon, Director of the MBA Program of the University of Adelaide, one of the top Australian MBAs according to the Financial Review's Boss Magazine and other rankings. We go on a wonderful journey through Damien's most eclectic life and discuss his learnings on what makes a strong leader, business and living an interesting life. Damien shares lessons from his career highlights, including builder's labourer, tuna fisherman, restaurant manager, graduate economist, CEO, COO, finance director and co-owner, working in sectors as diverse as mineral processing, aquaculture and aviation and lessons as to what makes a good job and when to move on. We discuss corporate culture and successful business and how it is critical leaders know if they have the aptitude and appetite for growth or maintaining a business. Damien shares his travelling adventures, including buying a one-way ticket to London as a young lad, travelling through Europe, the Middle East and Asia, and nearly dying from typhoid in India. Thankfully, Damien survived to live and share his story. Let's not waste a moment. On with the show. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about. Wait! Okay, now, from the beginning. Welcome, Damien. Thank you for, for joining us today. I'm going to start off where I've started with these interviews so far. Uh, I think we're up to sort of yeah, into the 20-somethings, probably even the 30-somethings sort of in, in terms of interviews. Um, what were you like as an eight-year-old boy? An eight-year-old boy? Well, we were considered the wild child. So I'm one of eight children. and uh, One of eight? One of eight. My father and mother came out from England, 10-pound 10, 10 poms, um, very well educated though, dad being a doctor and mum a nurse, but decided to move to the hills and um, we, I think, lived one of the most magical childhoods you could imagine. We would, we just ran wild, ran free. Mum couldn't possibly keep a, a rain on us, so um, we explored, we went Did on you have adventures. Did a big property? Or... Uh, well, we, we, 
we didn't, we, it was an old orchard property. It was a pear orchard, but the pears had been left to, to go. But um, we had the run of the whole valley, basically. We'd be down the creek in the summer swimming and fishing and all sorts of things and um, climbing trees and making go-karts and going down to the pine forest, making toboggans. We just had a wonderful time. So, you know, it's amazing when you reflect back at the time, we just thought that was what life was about. I mean, mm. we lived a reasonably frugal life in the sense that it took a long time before we could afford to put a bore down, so we lived off rainwater. So when you know that rainwater is very scarce in South Australia, um, you know, you could only have a bath once a week and it was a bath that all children shared. It wasn't fresh water every time. You'd only flush the toilet when you absolutely had to and mum would use the bath water to, to water the, the plants that she yeah. had. So, uh, you know, we, we grew up never bothered us. Um, it was just a great lifestyle. Obviously, we also um, lived through bushfire um, season. And Where about were you in the hills? Basket Range. Yeah, okay. So a very quiet uh, valley. Uh, Julie Bishop was across the yeah. valley. Very well-entrenched um, orchardists, cherries, a lot of it's vineyards now, but it was, you know, cherries and pears and apples and uh, very old families. And I think when we came and invaded, I think that the fact that Dad was a, a doctor was the only thing that su- yeah. that allowed us to survive. Yeah, okay. I've realised I started without getting a glass of water. Would you like any? No, no, I'm good, thanks. Good. Yeah. Um, where did you sit in the eight? So I was number two, uh, number one son, and the only reason I say number one son is because it wasn't too long as I got older that I sort of became the surrogate dad because um, dad was obviously a very, very hard-working doctor. He ended up being a psychiatrist in private practice and um, so he worked pretty long hours and um, so I would pick up the pieces as far as supporting mum with all the various, yeah. my various siblings. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I think my, my dad was one of eight as well, which is... And sort of you hear about sort of the, the roles that people take when yeah. you probably have to work bloody hard when you've got eight kids, don't uh, you? Well, really? I, think, I, I think my mum didn't really put her head up for 20 years. I, you know, yeah, I, wow. I, she's a remarkable, remarkable woman. And yet she would have endeavours. She was a ceramicist, so she was a wonderful potter, very artistic. She decided she wanted to breed goats. Yeah. So we've got a multitude of ribbons from various country shows, including the royal shows. So we lived a very eclectic lifestyle. Yeah. What? It's you said it was hard at the time to know what it means to be one of eight and to live the lifestyle you live, and then you look back and it was quite blessed. Yes. What do you think, on reflection, you take out of having a large family like that? Oh, you learn that you you have to compromise on everything. You're not going to be singled out and and be treated you know any differently to anyone else. You learn to share. Um, you learn to also. As my sister would say, the reason I'm holding two apples is I know that there won't be another one when I want another one. It's mm-hmm. survival of the fittest because we're all pretty hungry, growing people. Yeah. And so it's not just sharing, but it's also making sure you get your bit too. So yeah. uh, there's a lot of dynamics that go on. And you can imagine, um, you know, sibling rivalry um, is part of the, the dynamics of any family. But, uh, no, we were, we're all pretty pretty close. But we had our moments, yeah. you know, naturally. Uh, you know, it's just one of those things, but uh, we're still a very close family. Yeah. So split boys and girls, right? uh, five boys, three girls. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah that's, that's interesting. So, and and you still you still stay in contact and. Well, it, we take it in turns every year to uh, have Christmas at somebody's place, and it was my turn last Christmas, and we had uh, fifty-seven people there. I think it was. Yeah. 
In terms of children and in grandchildren. In terms of children, and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Yeah, wow, isn't that great? So, yeah. um, and some French visitors because my oldest daughter has a French partner and his parents came out to visit plus his five cousins. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it was. we had a lovely pig on the spit and lots of other bits and pieces, so it was a wonderful celebration on Christmas that's, Eve. That's wonderful. And well, obviously your, your career is a key part of your life, but where does where does where does fam- like, I guess where, where does family fit in the life of a successful person in your mind? They're not necessarily just your life. But like, what's the? I'm guessing you get young people that are coming through and they're going to conquer the world and they're going to build the next Facebook. And yep. but where does where does like family to you come from? Oh, look, I think it's one of the, the greatest grounding aspects of my life in the sense that it brings you into a um, an, an, an almost an aura of understanding that there's a lot more to life than just work lot more to life than material things. There's a very enriching component of family. There's also a huge responsibility around. I remember my father saying, you know, you never chose to come into this world, Damien. Um, we chose you to come into this world. So we will. We have an unconditional love and responsibility mm. for you mm. until the day we die. And I've said that to each and every one of my children. And, and it's something that, you know, I hold dearly to my heart. So, yes, I've had a rich and varied life and um, which has shaped me in all manner of ways but I think you know the family has always been the one constant whether it's my family or now my own personal family mm-hmm. with my children so yeah. and your cultural background what would you describe so we're English you're English yeah English and I married a Greek yeah so how's that di- how does that differ um, we've had a couple of interviews I guess one of the focuses we've been having through these interviews is the cultural differences and we've had we've been a different we assume sometimes in Australia that we're all pretty well the same, but yeah. how do you sort of see the say, Greek family versus a, a British background? Well, obviously, um, I mean, first and foremost, I feel very privileged that I have had the opportunity to um, be involved with my, um, my extended family. I got lucky. I didn't just have two parents. I've got four parents. You know, my in-laws are the most wonderful people. In fact... Quite stark backgrounds. My parents, extremely well-educated, came out here with jobs and, uh, well, mum was pregnant, so she wasn't going to be working, but um, uh, with jobs, uh, spoke English, obviously. My in-laws came out as individuals, um, no English and no education, and uh, they came here and they built a life. And yet the values that my parents hold are so similar to the values that my in-laws hold. Uh, particularly my mother-in-law and my mother. They're both the most extraordinarily caring people, nurturing people, gentle people, um, you know, sensitive people, um, giving people. I mean, you know, just giving. I mean, while um, my wife, Lisa, it's not her real Greek name, but that's what her name is, um, uh, was only one of three and I was one of eight. Um, if you know anything about Greek lifestyles, they know when they have parties and they have a number of them for various reasons um they are very large um yeah. episodes and so, so if you had a party on the other side of the family is that it's a very big side? Uh, absolutely yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely so you know it's just a there's a multiple sort of layers of family that, that get connected in yeah. and you know they they love to they love to party it's great they work extremely hard um but they love to you know play hard as well so and that's been a privilege to be part of that so yeah 
and you were bottling up tomatoes on the weekend. Well, that's part of the tradition. As you know, one of the privileges I've had is that you know we've made wine, um, olives, um, and you know it was tomato season, and so on Monday the whole extended family came over and we had 192 kilos to process, and we did with everybody. And uh, so, how many people were doing that? All family. Yeah. Yep. How many and, people were that? Doing? Uh, there was about 20 of us there, yeah, so okay. just close yeah. family. So you set and, up a production line. Well, a huge production line, and because it's quite a, a big day, and uh, we cooked up a beautiful um, lamb, uh, pig, and um, chicken on the spit, and um, had that for lunch. Kept everyone energized, mm. and then. Away we go again. And yeah. I think I finished at about half past nine, ten o'clock that night. Yeah. As a, in, in some ways, it's been an outsider looking into a, a ritual like that. What's the point of it? Is it about making good use out of all the tomatoes? Is it a love of food? Is it the family? Is it, Look, is you, it hard work? Where, 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 what's you could of, argue, you know, even some Greeks today will say, why would you bother going to the trouble? You can buy mm. such cheap sauce in bottles. And that's not the point. The point is it's the most wonderful family day. Everybody's together. Everybody is talking, enjoying themselves. Um, they've all got a part to play and they know that there's a productive outcome. We all love that sauce and we'll use it for the next two years until it'll be time to do it again. And uh, you then sit down and have a magnificent feast and it's just a wonderful, you know, it's very hard. It's an intangible thing, but it's just, it's the fabric of the family. It's the fabric of, of the activity, of the rituals, of going about these things where food is such a central part of Greek culture and many cultures, of course. Um, food in the English culture is not quite the same, yeah. um, although mum was a very good cook when she had to be, but generally speaking, she was cooking for the masses because often it wasn't just eight kids. Eight children will bring their friends and all, you know, it will be just them. Mm. And we had cousins from England staying with us, so... functional feeding. A lot oh, of well, in the end it was just uh, catering, basically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, I wouldn't call it exotic food because mum was English. And so, but I was really introduced... You know, I didn't particularly like steamed vegetables the way mum cooked them, uh, all the stews, and then all of a sudden I came into the Greek family and... They, they put lemon and olive oil uh, on vegetables and that just transforms and it's mm -hmm. just a remarkable thing that something simple like that could change everything. And so, um, you know, you get introduced to so many different aspects of their cuisine and it's very simple cuisine but it's it's it's, it's beautiful and, um, you know, it's, it's very different to English food. Mm -hmm. I'd describe it, um, you know, when I first went to England, you know, food over there seemed to be a chore. It was just something you had to get on with it get it over and done with and move on, whereas it's such a central part of Greek culture that everybody looks forward to when we sit down and we eat, you know. It's a big part of the day. We talk about what we did on that day, we enjoy our food, and it's that's that intangible fabric of family once again. Yeah. Were you academic as a child? You talked about your growing up and you were needing to be, take a leadership role in the family, but were you... Did you like school? Were you academic? Did you uh, what, what, what did you want to what would you what did you want to do when you grow up? Well, it, when I was in junior school, I was always did very well. Um, it wasn't until I got to senior school that things started to go a little bit awry. Unfortunately, I went to a uh, Christian Brothers College. Maybe I shouldn't say that, but uh, it's all in the papers anyway. But um, it's not a very good school as far as. Um, the behaviour of the brothers was concerned. And also growing up, you know, with that, 
with the conflict in the Catholic Church around the 70s with, you know, free love. There were half the, the brothers were trying to be trendy and cool and the other half were trying to hold on to every bit of conservatism they could have. And so if you're a kid going through puberty, you've got the Vietnam War on, you've got social change and dislocation, it's a really, you know, interesting time to be to be growing up. So I didn't really take the orthodox path. I got very interested in uh, really different sort of books, you know, around, you know, from beatnik books like Jack Kerouac and those sorts of things, got very interested in uh, Eastern religions, particularly Zen and Zen Buddhism, you know, uh, very interested in um, art, surrealism and, that, and those sorts of things. So I sort of took a very different sort of... Uh, Did that come from, though, your 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 schooling kind of triggering, triggering you to think, is there a different way of thinking? I think so. Um, it's hard to... Uh, to this day, I'm not really exactly sure, but there was... Uh, three of us were sort of, I guess, the the radicals in the sense that we didn't fit. Uh, music was a big part of it as well. We would go to many um, live concerts, but mainly blues and jazz. So we were very alternative in the, you know, in, in the end from an orthodox sense. So we didn't fit that formula. And, you know, when people were asking me, you know, what was I going to do? Was I going to be a doctor when I was 14 or something? I said, no, 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 I'm going back to where I come from. I need to understand my roots um, I'm going to have to work and do all these different jobs because um, I don't have any money, so I've got to save up so I can actually mm. get to England and, and discover where I come from. And uh, that's exactly... Was that was an intention of staying in England or was it about just it was really discovering your heritage? Discovering my heritage. Yeah. You know, my father fought in the Second World War and, um, you know, it seemed, you know, in the Royal Navy and, um, you know, I needed to go back and understand, you know, you know, why he did that in the sense that he obviously felt very strongly for his country um, and, uh, you know, understand, you know, just the fabric of that society and because it was in my DNA, obviously. Mm-hmm. So I really wanted to sort of discover a little bit of myself in a sort of some sort of strange way as a 14-year-old. Uh, and that's exactly what I did. So when I left school, um, the only bit of advice Dad gave me was, um, you know, you can, I, I'm, I have no interest for you to do anything other than what you want to do it's your life not mine but the only thing I would recommend is that finish off your um, matriculation which is now year 12 because if you do want to go to university one day at least you won't have to go back and do that and that's exactly what I did and um, and so I then left and um, did a whole array of jobs from builders labourer to um, Spent six months on the tuna boat out at sea. I was a private gardener, uh, worked in a fish factory, uh, ended up um, in a restaurant and ended up running a restaurant. I know that's, that's a long story in itself, but was a, running a restaurant at 19 years old. Running, I think I was working about 100 to 110 hours, you know, but I loved it. It was one of the most sort of, I guess, formative times of my life when, you know, you're, you're young, you're, you're naive, but, you know, it was a very good restaurant. It was a Greek restaurant? It was yeah. a Greek yeah. restaurant. That's the irony of all yeah. of this, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that because there are some ironies in my life which I, I reflect on sometimes and laugh, but um, it was a very it was an up, first upmarket Greek restaurant in Adelaide. Most Greek restaurants were just along Hindley Street, mm-hmm. you know, selling gyros, but this was a very classy restaurant and a lot of classy sort of, clientele as well, so from QCs to cabinet ministers in the state government to 
in excess who came in because WEA Records were just down the road. Okay. Um, so we had a, an array of people, very now famous winemakers who were young bucks at the time, really sort of very ambitious. And so I got to know all of these people uh, without realising, you know, how it was mm. all going to mm. unfold. And it was a wonderful way to, uh, I, I guess, to, without realising it, to, you know, build a lot of social skills. I mean, mm. when you're working in hospitality, uh, it's not just... Um, serving food you're under a fair bit of pressure you've got to be able to deal with pressure you've got to be able to deal with things going wrong but at the same time you've also got to make sure that the experience of that person is going to be memorable so they're going to come back again so it's you know the quality of the food was outstanding but if the, the service wasn't up to you know up to standard then that would affect people's decision making so i had a lot of you know lovely lovely regular customers that would come you know for many 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 sort of years yeah. would come because uh, I ended up going back to the restaurant when I came back from overseas. After so you spent, How long did you spend overseas? A year and a half. Yeah, okay. I went through uh, Europe, Middle East and, and Asia. Yeah, okay. So yep. you made enough money, spent time managing that restaurant. Yep. A year and a half and came back again. Yeah, yeah. and went to university because by that time I was ready to start. I yeah. knew exactly what I wanted to study. I'd, I'd sort of read a lot while I was overseas and I got really interested in economics and wanted to understand more. So, did, where, where did that get triggered? Uh, just travelling. Travelling. Uh, yep, yeah, travelling. I began to understand that there's a very big world out there and uh, I began to read The Economist and The London Times and I started to really try and understand, you know, geopolitics and, uh, you know, it was for a you know, young, naive kid, it was a big eye-opener. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you're overseas on your own, I mean, you, you, you've got all, you're doing it all yourself. Mm -hmm. So it, it's uh, no such thing as uh, a smartphone. This mm -hmm. is all, all on your own, trying to work out exchange rates, uh, working out languages, working out directions, accommodation. And that in itself is a fantastic experience to build, you know, I guess resilience and, and and sort of self self sufficiency, mm. I guess, and confidence that yeah. you can deal with all. So you very much things. found yourself. Uh, yeah, I mean, you find you know. I think I've always been looking for myself. I don't think that journey ever stops. I mean, I'm always sort of reflecting on on things, and I think that life is a journey. But it was, um, you know, I, I look back on it, and you know, another formative time of my life. Mm. I mean, I also nearly died in uh, in, in um, India, and uh, that's uh, quite a challenging sort of experience when you know that you're incredibly sick. Did you just get ill? Or did uh, yeah, I got typhoid. Yeah, okay. yeah, Not that I knew I had typhoid at the time, but I knew and I was... And being in a different health system, sick. I'm assuming that. Sort of oh, there was no health system. Yeah. I mean, this is, you know, in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. I was going overland from India to Kathmandu and um, took me days to get there, whether I was jumping on the back of a truck or trying to find a train or anything I could get to Kathmandu, but in and out of delirium and... Um, yeah, vomiting and diarrheaing and uh, just really, really in a bad way. But you can't give up. You know, what do you do? You know, you, mm. can, you, know, you ha don't have any choice if you want to stay I alive. I you didn't have family there. Or, no, no, not at all. I mean, and there's no one you can go and ask. Mm. I mean, there's, it's a, it was a very much a third world country. I mean, I'm telling you, mm -hmm. you, you I've seen things that I wouldn't want anyone to see. Um, you know, it, it's an extraordinary place. Um, and anyway, you know. Survived. That's right. um, and um, best way to deal with a challenging situation is just to buckle in and. Hope well, you have to. I mean, if, well, you're not going to. I mean, you, the only other alternative is you know climb under a rock and die, and mm. I certainly wasn't going to do that. So you find a lot of um, a lot of strength in adversity, and I know that sounds like a cliche, but so uh, when you're faced with that, it's um, you you do find a, a, another way of dealing with 
with with adversity. Mm. So how old were you when you moved back to Adelaide? So I came back as a 22-year-old and uh, went to university and went straight to work again at that restaurant because I had bought a house with no money and that's another story in itself. It was all legal but it was something that, you know, uh, it was possible um, but um, it was a little bit of financial engineering but it worked and uh, so I had, that needed to be renovated so I had a mortgage. Uh, so I was studying full-time, working at night, renovating this house. So I was working seven days a week, seven nights a week and I had a ball. You know, I had an absolute ball. It didn't bother me at all because when I was studying, I was studying. When I was working at night at the restaurant, I was working at night. And when I was renovating, I was renovating. Mm. So I had this lovely de decompartmentalization of yeah. my life and they all allowed me to relax from one and enjoy yeah. the next one. Yeah, that's good. Just I won't necessarily get um, dive deep into every kind of step in your career otherwise we'll kind of be here for the, the day but sort of what, what are some of the, I guess the pinnacle kind of um, career milestones that have got you to where you are today? Like you... Well I, I, one of the things that I uh, reflect on is that you know you've got to back yourself I mean you know I finished uni I got offered honours and I said well unless you can pay for me I can't afford to do another year at uni so and they didn't sponsored people back then so I uh, honestly thought I, there was a bit of a recession on then and I thought I might have to find some money and become a helicopter pilot because they were in demand um, but as it turned out I was offered a job in Canberra and um, which I took because they were very rare those jobs so I took it and um, I love the snow skiing in the winter time but I have to say that was about all I could say about my experience in Canberra, did not like the work, did not like being a public servant. And so I so I came back and um, I left and uh, got into banking and uh, got into a, a management program and um, couldn't stand banking either. So <laughs> I left banking. And I think, you know, a lot of people when I tell so them... So you loved the restaurant, you didn't like banking, you didn't like government. No, didn't yeah. like government, didn't like banking. And then I got into the oil industry. Yeah. And I was working for Amoco, uh, which I think was part of the Exxon Mobil Group, but I can't remember now. But uh, but the oil crash came and the people I was working for got sent back to Houston to lose their jobs. But I then got picked up uh, by the TNT Group in the aviation side and um, I fell into their work and um, discovered I really enjoyed the opportunity of what they had to offer. I started off with special projects and ended up being the branch manager running the South Australian operation um, and then I was asked to go to Sydney to take on a national role, which I did, and then got asked by Sir Peter Abels to go down to ANSET, the airline, to prepare them for the deregulation of the, uh, the airline industry. And then I was asked to do an MBA and um, by the firm and I said, is there any any preference of where I do it? And they said, no, there's not many MBAs in Australia at this time, so they're all all at the, all the very best universities. So I said, well, I might go back to Adelaide, which I did. And I did the MBA and um, kept working in the, in the TNT group and then eventually um, joined the Adelaide Brighton group and worked in the mineral processing side of things and ended up being the CEO of one of their subsidiaries. And then... Um, Left that, went out on my own in the aquaculture business with my brothers and then sold out after about 10 years and 
set up a science organisation that I was asked to do and eventually was asked by the university to come and give them the hand. So what I'm trying to explain here is that I was happy to leave perfectly secure jobs. Mm. I was happy to leave um, well-paid jobs. If it wasn't giving me any value and I felt I wasn't giving any value back, then I just couldn't see the point. Mm. So I'm Can not... you explain that a bit more? When, when's the time to leave? When, if I, I, as I say to my kids, you're not going to have good days every day, but you want more good days than bad days. The time when it comes that there's more bad days than good days over a reasonable period of time, that's when I start So what's a bad day? Well, when I'm not fulfilled as, as a, as a person, Mm. you know, in the sense that I don't feel that, you know, I'm actually adding any extra value here. You know, I know there are jobs that you have to be a maintenance person, but that's not in my psyche. I'm Mm. not a maintenance person. I'm happy to engineer growth. I'm happy to engineer change. I'm happy to reinvigorate things. But I'm, I'm once it's got to that stage where I think that it's in a steady state, then it's time for me to sort of probably say, okay. So businesses grow, and you're you enjoy that change and growth period, and then they inevitably hit a point where they kind of just plateau on yeah, and, and that's maintaining when I, and then I then I say I think it's time for new yeah, eyes okay. now. Um, yeah. I think I, I can't offer anything more to this yeah. organisation, so it's new eyes now, mm. and I'm happy to do that. Yeah. So and it's I, an interest. I've got a couple of colleagues that are talking in a similar way of going that they 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 are good at and have the skills around the growth bit, but. And, and it's almost like different people. They right? are different. the growth people. and the maintaining, yeah. which is something we don't really necessarily yeah. talk about a lot of going. There's people that run a business, maintaining that business yeah. model, and there's other people that, that grow that business model. Yeah, and I think it's important that you, you know your limitations. Yeah. And, you know, I think if I was asked to, to maintain it, I could do it, but I'm just not saying I just don't think I would enjoy it particularly mm. and then I wouldn't perhaps do it in the best way possible. Yeah. So what, what like, over your sort of eclectic career that you've had, what would you, from the restaurant through to oil companies and, and the likes, what would you say are um, the key building blocks of building a business? It's, it's a really big question um, there. But are they kind of, do you, do you look, and obviously doing the, the MBA, overseeing the MBA program now. What? Oh, this, you know, running an MBA program, it's, it's you know, it, it's really preparing people to, you know, start to see the world a little differently. We challenge mm. our students. Um, you know, we don't necessarily ask them to agree with everything that we'll present to them, but we expect them to keep an open mind and, and, and we we do want them to challenge the norms mm. and the accepted uh, ways of doing things. Um, so is that one that's really been able to challenge the norms? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And to and just not necessarily blindly accept that just because this is the way we do things, uh, it, that is the best way to do things. So, you know, for me... If you're going to start thinking, having been a CEO, you know, it, it was really important to understand, you know, well, what, what actually are we really good at? You know, what's our position in the marketplace, you know? And if we were to close tomorrow, would anyone miss us, you know? Um, you, you've got to really have an understanding of what we're good at mm. and, and, and can we be better to take a better position in the marketplace and, you know, where's the value that we're creating for the end user? And, and that's really important that we do that. And once you... Are comfortable that yes, we have got the capability to actually achieve the things that we think we can achieve. Um, then you've got to build a culture that's going to embrace that vision and you know allow people to be part of it. They've got to know that what part they play, but continually work on 
you know, making sure that we all understand who we are as a business, mm. our position in the marketplace, how we, you know, what we actually do for customers and the value that we are actually going to provide, you know, both sides. Yeah, okay. You know, it's really important. So that, so that first one is being a leader that can have a vision to see that the business has opportunities to yes. grow and offer more to customers in the market and yep. differentiate and all those things there. And yep. then next is building a strong culture around that who can follow that vision. Absolutely, and, yes. And being clear yeah. about and that leadership is really critical in finding that right. That's yeah, and it's, it's not, you know, leadership's a funny word, but um, it, it, it's not, not sort of in necessarily inspiring anyone. It's just asking the hard questions and, and, and you know, one of the first things I said to the senior team when I was appointed the CEO is I said, if you think that I know all the answers, I'm, you're going to be so sadly disappointed because mm-hmm. I don't. But what I will be doing is asking each and every one of you to contribute to, to the process, but I'll have to make the call. That's what, mm-hmm. my, what I'm paid for and I'll get the chop if it's the wrong call. Mm-hmm. So it's really important. You know, I'm happy to be held accountable. That's, you know, I've never had a safe job in my life mm-hmm. and, uh, well, I suppose the public servant one might have been a safe one, but I, I, I made myself unsafe by leaving it. But um, so I don't have any problems with with being um, held accountable, and and I do exactly the same at the university. I mm. just say I hold myself accountable for the MBA. Every part of the value proposition of what the MBA is, from when the moment you start looking at the website to the moment you graduate and become an alumnus. All of that along that chain is something that I have to make sure that that journey is enriching yeah, and enjoyable yeah. and stimulating and challenging and valuable. Mm. But and, and again, come back to being a leader and you've got the, a good culture and a good good team supporting you, mm. I assume you're making those, those, those decisions and having that accountability, but you're making those decisions against that vision that you're working towards, aren't you? Yeah, really? ab- you're almost on your mind. You're, yeah, absolutely. You're going, does, it, does this fit with our KPIs, but also does it fit with the vision where the business we're looking to And that's And that's the big test all the time, yeah. you know, it, you know what, making sure we understand what we do. Where's the value proposition yeah. around what we do for the end user? And I also, one of the other things I said to the senior management group was, I don't micromanage. You're here to do a job. Uh, I'm not here to do your job. So if I'm having to look over your shoulder you've got a problem because I don't want to do your job. Mm. Um, It's hard enough doing mine. Um, So, you know, I'm here for advice, counsel, thoughts, ideas, but I'm not here to do your job. So the other part of that culture building is making sure you trust people Mm. to get on and get their job done, but be available to support them. And the most important thing is, is be who the hell you are because, you know, one thing people won't tolerate people who aren't, actually true to their mm. word i'm happy to say i made a mistake or i don't know mm-hmm. you know i you've got to build a, a sense of authenticity around you that people can say yeah i trust damien he, he is mm-hmm. what you see is what you get you know and uh, there's no agenda other than building the business as best as we can yeah. with the resources but having that leadership got. team of having been been confident enough to know what the values are what's in what what's out okay kevin thinking about that um, the growth, growth to growth for the sake of growth is not right, but growth within the kind of framework that you've set of what business you want to build into Look, is, if, is important. Like yeah. I, I, we, we have done some work for say groups like Hague's and Hague's Chocolate and doing very well as a business. They have their own outlets that they, they fund. They've got an online store as well. Um, and people, I'm sure, always say, why don't you go in the supermarket? They probably sell more chocolate, but that's not within their framework. Yeah. And, they go, and they've got a few other things that they, they work with. And I think it's that that 
considerations of the business of what, what's inside and not. The leader knows that, but also the leadership team knows don't even raise that thing because that's at the moment it's not something that we're thinking. And that's about. really important. And, you know, I've actually got a student who works for Hague's as we speak and a fantastic background. He was a carpenter and a builder and he's, he's now dedicated to finding fantastic retail outlets from them around Australia. Mm. I mean, it's wonderful. But, you know, I think it's really, you know, it, you know, you, that's, you know, Hayes knows what their value proposition is, and if you do go to the supermarket, you're breaking that 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 special experience of walking into the shop, enjoying you know that experience. You have a look at all their staff; they love working there. Mm-hmm. They absolutely love working there. And I, I, you know, I, I always like telling this story when um, Jaguar cars. Everyone knows Jaguar cars. I mean, they went through a terrible time many years ago, and um, they had a complete turnaround. But they asked this person on the production line, so what do you do here? And he said, I put the left door, left back door on the XJS. That's what I do. And when they sort of went through this massive change and worked out what they were good at, what position they'd had in the marketplace, you know, what they could be, um, and they started to actually do well, they came back and asked that same guy, what do you do? He said, I build Jaguars. Mm. That's what I do. And I think if you talk to a Hague's chocolate person, it's not just about selling chocolates. They're selling mm. a whole experience and they're selling a family story. Um, Alastair works with us in our family business research unit. They sell a wonderful story. So there's a whole experience, mm. all the intangibles associated with that, that story. It's not just the chocolate. Yeah, it's interesting. I know, I know we've had a bit of a tour out the out the back in their, um, or one of their, their um, main production area. And it's basically just, there's um, there's no Willy Wonka or sort of Oompa Loompas, it's mm. people making chocolate. That's exactly right. <laughs> and it's not, and I, and I assume if I went into Cadbury, it'd be far more automated, but I think it is that, um, knowing where it is. So, so we've talked about leadership, we've talked about culture. Uh, what, what are some of the other pillars or, or building blocks of, of creating a, a growth company? Well, I don't know about, I mean, sometimes... Is it about growth or is it sometimes just about survival? It really depends on your circumstances, and you know the world is a strong company. Well, the world's a complex place. I mean, and um, and you know, every generation has its moments. Um, I think what this generation has that no other generation has ever had is the the extraordinary pathway into um, you know billions of users. If you get if you Mm -hmm. happen to hit the jackpot, I mean, you know, the exponential growth of Google and well, Alphabet, Google, um, Facebook, um, it's because of the way that you can reach your markets through the internet. It's just a remarkable thing. So that's something that this generation has mm. has got that no other generation has ever had. Um, so the access to, to yeah, more customers. A- a- than, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So And, and then the, the monetization model, and that has all of its issues too now, of course. But I think... Um, you know, it's about if growth will come if it, the only constraint to growth is capacity. You know, and uh, if you're doing if you're doing what there is a value for someone that's prepared to pay. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's something that you've. It, I know that sounds really simplistic, but ultimately it is about where is the value created, and the reason why you know you do industry analyses. Uh, you know, when you're looking at you know your position in the marketplace, is that there is a value chain. And it's, you may only have one part of it. And so if you take a look at the wine industry or even the, the furniture industry, you know, if you had a look at 
you know, you know, IKEA is incredibly successful, but if you actually have a look at how they create their value, it, they're one of the few furniture peoples that are successful. It's a pretty miserable, you know, uh, industry if you have a look at all the, the results. The airlines, terrible industry when you look at, mm. um, you know, it, you look at the American airline industry and the returns for the industry as a whole and for a lot of the airlines it's pretty ordinary. But there are some who are making fantastic value mm -hmm. and it's because they've worked out where the value where the value can be maximised and they've got the capacity to do that. And they usually break the, the, the normal industry rules to do that too. Mm -hmm. Um, and so they're not for everybody. They're for, 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 the, for often for often for a niche possible, market, yeah. but they're making more money. Yeah, that's right. So it's it's really about understanding the whole value chain of where the money is made in that industry. Why do the same in wine? Where who's making who's making the money in the mm -hmm. wine? Is it is it the, the is it the grape growers? Is it the winemakers? Is it the um, distributors? Uh, the retailers? You know, where's the money made? And you know. Oops, sorry. Um, you know, you, you you do the work, and then you find out. Well, I'm not making a lot of money as a as a grower, but I'd rather live that lifestyle than not. So yeah, yeah. then you have other decisions to make. So yeah. you know, it's and not that's been a, a uh, an increasing competition over recent years about looking at the business model and looking at the category and like finding blue oceans. The, the, Blue Ocean strategy, I think, it was about ten years or so old. But sort of that idea of finding new markets, but rather than replicating how other organ other businesses in that category um, operate, to actually kind of re rethink it, really, well, and looking at new models, looking at new ways, and, and that's exactly right. I mean, uh, the only reason why um, Cirque du Soleil was successful is because the original circus was becoming less and less right. of interest. Um, and it was generally dedicated towards children, and it generally had caged animals, which became a no-no. Um, they just said, well, let's make it for adults and let's make it really cool. And that's exactly what they did. So it wasn't so much that they reinvented the circus, they just recognised that the circus, as, it, as that traditional model, was no longer of providing great value mm -hmm. and it was only value to a limited market. So they said, well, where can we, how do we sort of re reinvent it? But it's not, it's not what you would call a circus anymore, mm -hmm. but it's, it was based on the model of a, of a circus. So. That's right. But that goes back to your point earlier about you, that, that need to be able to look at your category differently is the key Always. role of a, a leader. Yeah, really, a absolutely. I mean, when I was the CEO of that company, it was a combustion science company, so they're very all very, very smart scientists, all PhDs, and um, but they thought they were in the contracting business. They used to make some pretty specialised burners for very large um, mineral processing plants, so they worked in cement, lime, pulp and paper, you know, where the energy bill was in the millions, and so if they could provide some efficiencies, they could save these people an mm. enormous amount of money. But they just thought that they were just like any other contractor. And so when I came in with fresh eyes, um, I'm not an engineer, uh, I said, well, tell me what are we good at? And they started to articulate what we were good at. And I said, well, who, who else does this stuff? And they said, oh, well, no one really does that, but they still make burners. And yeah, I said, but you do some other modelling, don't you? And you can actually do a far more technical exposure of how their systems are working that, so that we, we can provide a much more refined solution. 
So I tested all of these things and I said, well, we're not in the contracting business anymore. You know, we're going to actually value base our pricing rather than cost base our pricing because we were creating a lot of value for these customers mm-hmm. and they know it. And so we're going to value base our pricing. And we turned around the, the, the company's finances reasonably quickly on yeah, that okay. basis. So, so once again, so you can a, change the fortune or the the direction of a business. It doesn't take years; it can take sort of. Oh, a, a bit of look! Of, I mean, it, sometimes I mean, engineers running businesses aren't necessarily good at understanding the numbers, and you know, changed a few things around working capital management and pricing and those sorts of things, and you can almost have an immediate impact. But put those simple things aside. Um, it's really understanding that what value are you creating. And does your pricing model reflect that? Mm. And that's really important. And they had honestly thought that they were just in the game of pricing on cost rather than pricing on value. And yet they were creating enormous value for these for these energy, if not for the energy mm. companies, for the mineral processing company by reducing energy costs. Yeah. But being a leader coming from outside of the sector rather than from inside the sector, which is still the traditional way that you employ a, a leader of a business is to get someone that's yeah. worked in that in yep. science or banking or wherever for, for, yep. for a long time and they've come up the, the ladder. and Yeah, but I think it's, you know, important and that's something that I've always sort of aspired to do is it doesn't matter how well you think you know the industry, you should always be reflecting on it and, you know, thinking about it and, you know, is, is there a different way of doing this rather than taking it for granted that I know this industry, I never do that. You know, because things can change rather quickly and there are plenty of case studies around that. They're happening all the time now. So it's really being being sure that you're just keeping an eye on, 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 the, on the way you do things and the way the industry is evolving because nothing stays still, mm-hmm. nothing. Yeah, there's a term, beginner's mind, that it's a, a Buddhist term, but it's basically a, a, a beginner sees endless possibilities and expert sees none. So it's, it's just knowing how to have that expansive mind. But I... I wonder whether it's sort of the, one of the challenges is whether it's once again in banking or science or whatever or market research or, or whatever category it might be is um, you, you're too close to it really. So, so, so I guess one of the things we talk about a lot or I write a lot about is disruption doesn't tend to come or almost never comes from within the category. It comes from outside the category and it comes from somebody looking at a category thinking, well, we can offer something a little bit, a little bit different. Um, Within a category, I guess there's sort of one, there's that sort of lack of beginner's mind or lack of seeing things differently. But I think then it's also, it's changing that culture. Like sometimes you might have a culture that, that is like over, built over decades of having a view of this is how things are done. Does that, how do you, how do you change that when there's that kind of, in, in a science organisation, it sounds like you're able to kind of move that direction but let's say you're in a big bank and you go, wow, we've, like, we've just had the Banking Royal Commission in Australia and it's come out quite scathing of, of banks not being customer-focused and, and being very profit-focused. How do you, not necessarily about banking, but in an organisation where you really do need to change the, move the boat in a completely different direction? That's a really complex question because, it, you know, part of the issue with the Banking Royal Commission was the the unethical behaviour associated with... with um, a lot of people inside the organisation and not enough checks and balances to manage that. And, you know, one of the things that in my mind comes out very clearly is that if you're 
have a remuneration system based on commission, then it's likely that you're going to challenge people's ethical frameworks if they've got a mortgage and mm-hmm. school fees to pay because um, their salary will be determined by whether they can sell this mm-hmm. product or not. And so I think it, it, it almost was a self-fulfilling prophecy right. that you are lending yourself to you know vulnerabilities in people's personalities based on their personal circumstances and so once you do that um i'm not at all surprised that it, you know and obviously greed becomes mm. part of but i'm assuming the, i'm assuming that the chair and the ceo of big banks and might be not even probably smaller banks need to go to the board saying what's your profit and what have you like it, it, their revenue or what's the share price looking at i think it's it's a that's, I guess, the reality of running a business like that, where growth is a is a KPI that's set. So, well, I it's mean, a hard one when you kind of go, how do you? Obviously, the, the Royal Commission is going to actually create some tightening of, of say, banking sector is probably got a good example. Aged Care's got their own, or had their own report released recently in Australia as well. Do you have to almost like do a like I don't know change the culture by meaning that you need to remove remove many people in that culture and and get fresh people in or well, it's hard when you've got such big organisations. I, mean, I mean, obviously, you know, anyone who's broken the law, the law should deal with them. Mm. But um, for me, it, it's once again understanding what where is the value that you're creating. Mm. And it's got to be true value. Um, it's not about, you know, these fabricated values of, you know, where, <laughs> where the banks, some of the banks got it wrong was that they were creating value for the bank and not value mm-hmm. for the customer because the right. customer was dead. You know, they were selling, yeah, charging yeah. fees to a dead customer. So there's no value. So when I talk about value, I mean the mutual value yeah. because that's how markets work. There has to be a perception on both sides that they are getting value mm-hmm. for the transaction. And so those were one-sided transactions and inevitably um, that will come mm-hmm. to a, a, a sticky end. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for me... Go back to first principles. What are we here for? What's our position in the marketplace? Who do we service? Where's the value that we create? Are we creating the best possible value for these people? Or are we just assuming that, you know, we're in this lovely, cosy, you know, big four opportunity where we've got a slice of the market and we can just be happy with that? Mm. Um, Their shareholders won't be happy with that, by the way, but... um, you know, the, you, you, and that's the hard one, isn't it? Because from a share, this, from a share um, well, this is, holder sort of this side, is, I want the price to keep going up. Right? I understand it dropped back a little bit for some of the banks, but they're still in the top ten kind of best investments in, a, yeah. in Australia, so it's not like they were sort of hammered there. Well, I mean, I personally think that the banks got away with a lot during that Royal Commission. They could have actually been really, really hammered. But um, put that aside, I think um, it's a vexed issue when it comes to uh, regulation and markets. We are in a mixed economy and I think that has some great advantages. Um, I'm a great advocate for the market because the market is a great arbiter, but when market there are market failures and in a country like Australia and historically we have had um, examples like the banks where, you know, it's not... You know, it's it's there are basically big four, mm-hmm. and, um, and and that has its issues. And so, um, you know, there are some matters around. Well, how efficient is that market when it comes to really allocating resources mm-hmm. and, and efficiencies and those sorts of things? But put all of that aside, um, 
you know, it still doesn't justify anything to do with the behaviour that went on yeah, by okay. those banks. So it will come down to culture. It will come down to understanding what is the real value proposition for our for our customers mm. and changing the changing leadership, changing cultural values, and and just you know. driving that through every aspect of the organisation. And as I said, I hold myself accountable for the whole experience. You know, and if you know if it goes wrong, then I say okay. Let's fix it. Mm. You know, it, it, it's gone wrong. Let's find out why it's gone wrong, and and then let's go and mm. put some put some things in place. And that's exactly what anyone should be doing in those banking things. You know, going through a whole self discovery process. Mm. You know, of trying to understand. Okay, where are all the weak links, and how are we going to embed some true understanding of you know what part each and every one of us play to provide the value to our customers. Mm. You know, yeah, and and. And I guess in their situation, in say banking or aspects of aged care and other sectors as well, I'm assuming that we make an assumption, particularly in our sort of business like market research and understanding people, that the most profitable way is to be customer focused. But but sometimes it's not. <laughs> it's actually if if, if, you, if there's blurry ethics, but um, it, it could be. It, it's the ethical thing to do is to be customer-focused. It's not just even the most profitable way. It's actually the most ethical way to run a business that you need to be customer-focused. Well, you know, people have to decide, you know, how do they want to sleep at night, you know. Mm. And in my mind, um, I'd rather sleep knowing that I, I did made the right decision for the right reasons rather than took a shortcut for, you know, the wrong reasons. Mm. And that's something that, I, you know, I think we all should hold true to because um, it's a slippery slope if you start compromising. Yeah. And I think it's a, 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 the, the the failings of, I guess, the incumbent or larger organisations, and I think often it is that greed and growth is is the only way in business, and I think that creates creates kind of complexities in a business and it means that they're ethically in, in stuck in ethical dilemmas. Uh, but it does actually create opportunities for for want of a better term, disruption of people going, oh, that's there's a functional kind of uh, or fundamental problem with this sector so we can actually kind of dis- disrupt it and we can be more customer-focused or we can offer a different way. And so maybe if you are sort of coming in at a, a, a smaller level and, and kind of trying to build and, and pull customers oh, away, it, it offers that opportunity. And there are plenty of examples of that. Yeah. But then, you know, on the other hand, you know, IKEA is such a great example of where, you know, the fellow the Swedish guy, you know, his whole axiom was to try and drive costs down in every part of the value chain, mm-hmm. but share that yeah, cost okay. saving. So I think if you look share at, that with customers, yeah. So if if you look at IKEA's you know pricing, mm-hmm. it's actually gone down consistently yeah, okay. because it's been a maxim about how do we best provide, mm-hmm. you know, for 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 those that can't necessarily afford, yeah, you know, okay. the, the high thing. So it's all about that. But that meant that he had to understand the whole value chain, yeah. you know. So he would actually engage with his suppliers mm. to help them drive their costs down, yeah, okay. so that his costs would go down, and then the customers' yeah. costs would go. But down. maintaining those values, yes, with, with the growth and saying that's an essence of what absolutely, we're okay. you know, and it's just been ingrained. Okay. But. That's that's okay in sort of private sector markets, but I mean you only have to look at the Australian cricket team and um, you know what happened last year in South Africa, and you begin to understand that it's not just you know the cricket team; um, it's 
you know, Cricket Australia and how that was run mm. and the culture of that organisation and the checks and balances of that organisation, the values of that organisation. And, um, and so it's not just our normal, you know, shareholder-driven moments. It's, it's also some of the, the things that we hold dear to heart and our right. culture that That's needs right. to be really seriously... It's easy to look in a, I'm not condoning any sort of bad behaviour, but it's easier to, to look at a helicopter perspective and think, well, in my in that situation, I wouldn't have done that, and how dare they? But people get put in really tricky situations. Well, and that's decisions that, and a leader often will need to make decisions that aren't popular, that are actually probably against the grain, and you hope yeah. they're not unethical, and you hope they're not actually sort of totally yeah. kind of um, illegal or anything like that. Yeah. But, but going back to your point about um, disruption and Disruption's been around for centuries. Um, and the cricket sort of analogy is that Kerry Packer saw that the staid old white flannel test cricket, you know, pay, play for your country and get mm. paid for nothing, um, he could liven it up with his, yeah. you know, uh, his, his coloured circus. And he did, and he made a lot of money out of it. So, um, and that's changed the face of the game. So that was a real mixture of, I guess, uh, Sporting bodies and the private sector merging and yeah. blurring, and you know, all of a sudden you had quite incredible disruption. Yeah, and, and it's and been disrupted some level of fairness, but yeah, but Kerry certainly wouldn't have done anything without like a profit. No, as well. absolutely and, not. Um, absolutely not. Yeah. Do you look at other? You mentioned IKEA as a good example of a, a business doing it well and has kept their ethos uh, as they're built and very much customer focused mm. and across the value chain. Do you look at other businesses that you use as good examples of businesses doing it well? Oh, I think there's a multitude of businesses doing it really well um, and they, they tend to have the consistency of really truly understanding what the, who they are and the position they hold and, and, and hold hold. Everybody knows. I mean, everybody understands that, you know, you ask anyone in IKEA what the philosophy of the organisation is and they know it and they're proud of it and that's why they stay there. Mm. But there's another fantastic organisation in the state called um, Foodland and, um, you know, the, the, the Pasadena Foodland is quite an extraordinary um, supermarket if, if anyone's been and seen it and if you haven't I would recommend it and we've got some MBA students doing some work out there but the Chapleys who are now a second generation family, Greek family as it turns out, I don't know them, um, certainly know of them but um, very focused on their people, mm. very focused on the experience for the customer. Um, their staff are the highest paid supermarket staff in the world. And they take the view that if you've been with us for 20 years and you haven't progressed or grown, then they feel that they've failed you. They're very focused on, on people. They understand that it's not just pulling stuff off the shelf, it's the experience. And Pasadena has a great example of that experience. And Fruville, which is also theirs, um, is, you know, one of the the supermarket, independent mm -hmm. supermarket in the world for a couple of years running and no doubt Pasadena will as well. So, I mean, that's a fantastic example of, um, you know, really, you know, very successful company mm. and this is a second generation mm. but still totally be, motivated. Be 50 or so years of... Motivated life. and dedicated yeah. and uh, really, you know, truly understanding, you know, the proposition of, you know the experience of coming into a supermarket. It's not. It's not just the money that they're they're receiving from the customer, but it's the value that the customer is receiving back. Not just in the value of the goods, 
but the value that they get through all the intangibles associated okay. with being in that supermarket. Yeah. I understand they, they started their first supermarket in Mildura sort of oh, probably 50 or so years ago and it's sort of just, just hard work and yep. a long time sort of just... And there's some fantastic stories. Up. I mean, if um, the, the Shaheen family is a remarkable story. I mean, they came out as uh, refugees from Palestine and uh, the only reason they bought a service station... Uh, that had a house on it was that he said, I can feed my family and, uh, I've, and I've got a roof over their head. I mean, he was an educator. He was an auditor for the uh, United Nations, so he was educated. But then they sort of were accidental um, sort of, I guess, entrepreneurs too in the sense that, you know, the Smoke Mark group, I think, went into liquidation and uh, his brother said, why don't we buy it? And everyone was saying, no, it's a too regulated. And then he said, well, that's why we're going to buy it because it's regulated. It was very counterintuitive. And that really ended up being their cash cow. And then obviously they got lucky. I think it was Mobile Exxon wanted to sell a lot of their supermarkets, but they did a lot of homework around, you know, the whole point of sale, convenience, and they've literally tipped upside down the point of sale convenience mm. store and transformed that landscape, you know, in, in a very short period of time, mm. which is a remarkable story in itself and, um, and, and you know, doing extremely well. Um, the And the data analytics they've got available to them, you know, they can tell you when milk spikes in what suburb so that their inventory management is second to none so talk about just in time mm-hmm. and working capital it's fantastic another great story is um nova systems so jim wally was a uh, he's now our chief entrepreneur but he was the he was a test pilot in the air force and uh, he did an mba actually with us and um did a project and his supervisor said what a great idea for a business jim why don't you start it up so he did he left the Air Force with no money, started up Nova Systems with him and a partner. It now employs over 600 people around the world. When did they set that up? Oh, that was back in the, I think it was the early 90s, I think, yeah. or a little bit later than that, yeah. actually a little bit later than that. And, um, you know, doing extremely well. And his company gets voted often as you know, one of the one of the best cultural places to work, at, certainly in, uh, in the defence industry. So he's done... Extremely well, um, and the reason why he's working as a chief entrepreneur a couple of days a week, he don't get paid for it, is because he just, you know, loves South Australia and what it's done for him, and he wants to give back, and he wants the the whole, you know, philosophy of entrepreneurship to be mm. embedded in the community. So I think you know there there are lots of wonderful stories out yeah. there. It it's interesting. Just picking up on um, some of the points you're making and the examples you gave of. It takes time. Like we're talking about the examples of businesses that it takes decades to build up that kind of business. Yeah, they probably got some success early on. I'm, I'm sure, but it takes a long time and and almost, luck and luck and luck. Yeah, yeah. Timing's everything yeah. in life. But there's, there, I'm, I'm assuming in all of those examples, even kind of going back to Hague's, that I, I understand is sort of um, seventy five years old. I think that's about seventy five mm-hmm. hundred years old. Um, that I'm sure they've had times when it wasn't working as well as it could, and I'm sure there still are yeah. <laughs> different points in any of those businesses we've mentioned. So it's that per- the going through the dip and it's that perseverance yep. and it's learning from that. Um, w- when you get to kind of guess the next wave of entrepreneurs coming through, and we talked about uh, we've got never had easier access to global customers, and I think that almost creates a, 
we look at Facebook and we look at Google and, and the likes and go, well, I'm going to create, I'm going to create that. I'm, I, I can, I, I want, I'm going to create a, a global juggernaut in five years or, or ten years, and I'll be driving my um, whatever car um, out there. And so there's that sort of that focus on, I guess, almost being an entrepreneur is is very quick. Where it's it's not about necessarily about survival and paying for you. No. You, you, you talked about like the shekins going well, largely it started off because we've got to feed my family and. Yeah. So, so you what, know, what do you kind of think when it kind of goes, how do you kind of tell young guys coming through uni or we're really, really ambitious, but it, it, it takes patience? Well, I mean, for every small business, for every hundred small business that start, I think about 90 fail. So I think it's, you know, quite sobering, the mm-hmm. statistics. And, you know, the Googles and the Facebooks and the Amazons, that's three. Mm. Yeah, that's right. You know, that's three. So, and they've had lots of capital injected into them. To yeah, there's you know, lots of stories around them, and so that's they they're just unusual. Yeah, all right, they're just so utterly unusual, and you know, it's like people say, "Oh, we've got to be innovative." And well, you know, being innovative isn't being a Google. You know, yeah, that was incredibly innovative the way they uh, rethought the algorithms for searching. But you know, it, there are. You don't have to be groundbreaking to be innovative, you know. It's about doing a lot of small things that can mm. help transform your company. So, you know, I think the the notion that, you know, I want to be the next Google, well, that's great, but, you know, and I don't want to... Start off small. I don't want to sort of dampen anyone's, you know, spirit, but, you know, they are... It's no different to, you know, wanting to play for Australia. Yeah, have that aspiration, but at the end of the day, only 11 people out of the whole population get to play for Australia. Mm. So it's hard. It's going to be really, really hard. So um, face up to the realities that, you know, that the likelihood of, of success is, is going to be far less than that it is for failure. But having said that, nothing ventured, nothing gained. So, you know, you've got to give it a crack. Um, and I, you know, geez, there's a great story. You would have heard of Cisco, all your routers here, mm-hmm. and, you know, Cisco phones. And, and routers and things like that. There was a husband and wife team that started that off and um, – and uh, they got venture capital in, and um, eventually they got to thirty percent of the. They owned only thirty percent of the company, and it actually caused a divorce. And so, but they said, "Look, when we're a billion dollar company, we're going to sell out." You know. So when they got to a billion dollar company, they sold out, and they got one hundred and fifty million each and walked away. Uh, she was interviewed uh, years later and said, "Well, you know, at one stage, Cisco was the most." Um, valuable company in the world it was worth 60 billion you know do you regret not staying in and she said well how much is enough you know 150 million is a lot of money you know what 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 makes 300 million or a billion dollars any more or any better for me i mean how much do you need and i think there is something about that is is that you know how much is it all about the money Mm. you know is it is it is that what it's all about Mm. um you know i think there has to be an underlying desire to make a difference, and the making the money is just the outcome. But I think if you don't have a, a desire to make a difference, then I think you know a difference to the world and yeah, difference to your customers and difference to you and what you're doing. Um, yeah, I, it's it's yeah. So yeah. that difference could be different to different people. Maybe. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But if it's all about the money, well, you know, I think you know that's. I, I always like people to think that money is the outcome of good business. Mm. That's it's an outcome. That's how it happens. That's yeah. your reward. So you almost need to be quite grounded in be very grounded. And yes, very and grounded. Peter Joy said, well, rather than trying to conquer the world, to start off by conquering the house next door, or <laughs> yep. and just starting off. And, and you 
from eight steps and you Absolutely. actually want to work that through. I, yeah. I, I don't think we're as bad in Australia, I, I don't think so, but I know in the US when you, you listen to podcasts and the likes about about um, startups and entrepreneurs, it's unless you can create a billion-dollar business, you've failed. And you go, wow, that's a, that's a big part of creating. That's, that's nuts. <laughs> There's that's, a whole lot of stuff that's that crazy. goes through. So you, you'd obviously have a lot of smart students who come through uh, your your program and, and you, you see and you mentor. What, what sort of, and I know it depends on the student, but what, what, what sort of advice do you give bright young people coming through wanting to have a successful life, a successful career? Big question again. Well, yeah, that is a big question. Well, I suppose that's my teachers used to say at school that the question's easy, it's just the answer that's hard. So um, uh, probably going back to first principles again, um, you know, be true to yourself, be prepared to explore, be prepared to make a mistake, be prepared to pick yourself up again um, and be prepared to ask or say you don't know. And but follow your dreams, you know, and be bold. I mean, you know, I, you know, I've had young undergraduate students say, "Oh, you know, you lot, you know, you left so many secure jobs. You know, why would you do that? You know, because they're about to embark on wondering whether they'll get a job and whether it'll be safe and this, that, and the other." And I said, "Well, because I, I want I." I felt I could back myself, you know, and I figured I was young and if it didn't work, I'd find a way to make it work, you know, and I think you've got to be brave and, you know, being brave doesn't mean you're not scared, let me tell you. I was pretty scared in, in when I was in the middle of nowhere, pretty sick, um, but you've got to be brave mm. and um, and you've got to back yourself that you think you can, you know, you'll find a way through and mm. I think that's that's really important and that's really all I would say. Live an interesting life, and that's probably a good place to end. Thank you so much, Damien. Pleasure. Great. All, right, all Pleasure. the best. Thanks. To comment on today's show, do so via Square Holes or myself on Twitter or your favourite social media. You can find me at Jason Dunstone. For more on today's show, other episodes, and articles on all things human-centered, customer-focused, innovation, and entrepreneurship, go to squareholes.com forward slash blog. Thank you for listening. Uru.